0: All right. Well, good to see everyone here tonight at Community. And if you would take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Those of you who are in the uh, Sunday School class that meets here in the auditorium have uh, maybe heard about this, but uh, just so you know, I hope that uh, using the PowerPoint tonight is not more of a distraction than it is a help. The, The rear projector isn't working. so. You might see me glance around a few times just to be sure where, where we need to be uh, with this, and I don't get bollocksed up with it. If you have Psalm 131, let's pay attention now to God's word. We'll read this psalm. It's only three verses long. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into this tonight. The psalmist writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and thank you, Father, that we have a church that finds it important to uh, have a midweek meeting. So many times, Lord, we get this far into the week, and we're greatly in need of fellowship and refreshment. And uh, we thank you for the power of your word to do that, whether it's when we spend time with you personally or when we come together at church. And Lord, we're heartened by the promise that says, "Where two or three are gathered together in your name, that you are in the midst." And we know that you are here tonight. So, uh, thank you that you know each of us as individuals. Thank you that you know our downsetting, our uprising. You understand our thoughts afar off. You know exactly where we are tonight and exactly what we need. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just take your word, minister through it tonight, so that it might be an encouragement to every heart, and uh, help us to be prepared also then for the prayer time that will follow. For I pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Well, if you look at Psalm 131 and you notice the superscription of the psalm, you'll notice that it, it is described as a song of ascent, and also we're told that David is the author of this. Some of you might be familiar or more familiar, I'm not sure, with the terminology that's used in the King James, for example, where these are called songs of degree rather than ascent. The idea is more or less the same, and you may be aware of the fact that what you have in these psalms is a grouping of 15 psalms running from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, and they are so called because they were selected and grouped together as they are because they were applicable uh, to the pilgrims who were going to Jerusalem when the time of the year called for them to go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord during the feast times. As you know, they were to appear there, the males were to appear there three times each year. So when you see that in your Bible, that's what a psalm or a song of degrees is. This particular psalm has occupied my attention, I would safely say, for at least a year. Not that I haven't read it before. I've read it many times before. You read it, of course, every time you go through the Bible and every time you go through the book of Psalms but I don't know. There's something special about this psalm. It's power-packed. It has a message for us, and I think the reason is, is because it, to me at least, and I'm hoping I can reach out to you with this tonight as well. This psalm brings up an issue that I think we have to deal with from time to time, and you see what I have it titled there tonight, When the Disquieting Becomes Distressing. Well, we're all too familiar, I think, with trials and these types of things that come into our Christian lives. This is to be expected because God uses these things to grow us. And we're going, I think, to see that in the psalm tonight. But sometimes the problem that we experience is when we're undergoing these trials, when different circumstances come into our lives, somehow it pushes the button just right, and we lose our peace and we lose our qu- our calm. And when that happens, the disquieting, the trial that comes along that for the moment disquiets us becomes distressing. And when that happens, of course, we really need to get back to God. We need to refocus our attention on Him, and that's what this is all about tonight. What better to focus our attention on the kind of situation that would become distressing than to think about the subject of loss. Now, I didn't just pull out of the air because this is actually the experience that David is going through. He doesn't tell us precisely what it is, but the illustration that he uses In verse number two, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Well, of course, a child experiences this when it comes time to be weaned. But it's important to notice that when this happens, and I don't profess to be an expert on this. I have been around livestock some and know some of the things that I'll share with you tonight from that. But I don't profess to enter into the realm of what mothers do with all of this. I'm sure they're much better qualified to talk about that than I am tonight. But I do know this, I do know that it's important to realize in the psalm tonight that what the child loses is not his mother. He doesn't lose his mother, he loses the provision or a gift, we might say, that the mother provides. That's a a very, very important thing to realize. And the child doesn't lose the gift or the provision because anything is wrong. The child hasn't done anything wrong and there's nothing wrong with the gift or provision. Rather, the mother intervenes because the mother realizes that the child has come to a place where to take the next step of growth, this has to happen. Well, loss is a pretty powerful thing to accomplish that. As I say, David doesn't tell us what precisely this may have been in his life, but we can only think tonight about different things that we've experienced like this, and sometimes it can go right from the disquieting to the distressing. Sometimes we lose a friend. That can be very very stressful, very distressing. Sometimes we lose financial security as in a job. That can really be distressing. Sometimes it's even to the point that we have lost a loved one. And in each of these particular cases, God brings this into our lives not because God is displeased with us and not because there's anything wrong with the with the gift or the provision itself, but because he knows that sometimes we tend to focus more on the gift than we do the giver. Sometimes we become distracted. Sometimes we, we focus more on the things that God gives, and sometimes a dependency actually forms as a result of this, and God will oftentimes bring this kind of a trial into our lives in order to refocus our attention on him. It really brings a tough question up. I'll say one more thing by way of introduction. I I don't know if you ever think about this question, but this psalm really faces us with a hard question, and that question is, is God enough? Do Do we love God, and are we going along in our Christian lives because God is sufficient or because we're enamored with the things that God gives us? If God were to take any of those things away for whatever reason he knows serves his sovereign purpose, would we be content? Is God enough? Well, this is a very rich experience that the psalmist describes for us here. And so tonight I want us to look at it in three thoughts. And the first thing that we're going to look at tonight is the psalmist's attitude. Attitude's everything when it comes to this this kind of a situation. I might say that whatever this situation is, as I've mentioned already before, that David is facing, it's clear enough, I think, from the language that he uses here, that he doesn't understand it. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? And it's one of the things I think that, that ratchets up the stress of situations for us a little bit. When these types of things happen in our lives, loss occurs or some other trial occurs, and we, we don't immediately see what God is doing. We don't immediately understand why God is doing it. Well, that ratchets the stress level up a little bit. I want you to focus on the, the wording that he uses here. He says in the latter part of the verse, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Too great and too marvelous. The marvelous, the too marvelous is really an interesting thought here because the idea behind this word marvelous is the idea of that which is surpassing or that which is extraordinary. It it actually gives us the opportunity to think a little bit about God himself. So, for example, Let's take a look at some of these verses that uh, tonight. First of all, you don't have to turn to these, but in the book of Judges, chapter thirteen, verse eighteen, if you look at this verse, this comes from the story of Samson, and you remember Samson's mother and his father Manoah, and you, you kind of remember that story a little bit. And, and the Lord appears to the woman; he doesn't appear to Manoah, and Manoah is bothered by that. He's hot to trot, and so finally, uh, the angel of the Lord appears to him, and. One of the things that he does almost immediately when this circumstance happens is he asks after the the name of the angel of the Lord. Well, in verse 18 of chapter 13, here's what it says, And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Well, that's the same word. You also know this from another verse. I don't have it up here tonight, but you know another verse. Where in Isaiah 9, 6, his name shall be called seven. His name shall be called wonderful. Many times we, we conflate those two, wonderful counselor, but the wonderful is actually a standalone thought in and of itself. And, and beloved, what this does is, is it kind of causes us to realize that God in and of himself is not someone that you can figure out. Now God is pleased to reveal himself to us. We can know God. And God is uh, pleased to reveal many things to us. But God doesn't tell us everything, and God doesn't always tell us everything when we might want to know it, does he? So that leads me to another verse that I want you to look at. The secret things belong, this is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever and ever, forever, that we may do all the words of this law secret things, things that God retains in his own counsel, things that God doesn't necessarily share with us. And then I think of another verse, if you look at this one, I I chuckle every time I come across this verse, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Well, I I tell you why I chuckle, because it's been a lot of years ago now, but I can remember when I was teaching Greek as a graduate fellow at Bob Jones University, and I don't remember I had a test that if we had a I had given a test that day or it was a quiz, but nevertheless I had the papers to take back and grade. So I'm going along with this one one uh, fellow's paper, and I get to it and I look up at the top and he's got Psalm 139 verse six written: "Such knowledge is too wonderful for me; it is high, I cannot attain unto it." Well, I had to give him A for his sense of humor. I don't I can't really remember how well he did on the the test itself, but. I can imagine this kind of being a little bit stressful for David. See, when you're a king, so take a look at this verse for a moment. When you're a king, you're sort of used to having the answers. You're sort of used to getting the answers. And that's why I pointed out the psalm is written by David. Proverbs 25 and verse 2 says this, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. So what do you have? Well, you have a situation where David experiences this loss, whatever it is. He doesn't tell us. But he doesn't understand that God hasn't necessarily seen fit to to give David insight into what it is he's doing in his life but David comes to looking at David's attitude this is really important because he realizes that to question God is really to presume that we know better but we all fall into this trap from time to time don't we we see things come along let me ask you this. You see a lot of things going on in the world that don't make a lot of sense to you? Ever troubled about those things? I have a confession to make. I guess when I really started thinking about this psalm was back in the fall of 2020. I just didn't understand what God was doing in the election and all the different things that happened there. And then COVID hit. I don't know, still haven't figured out what God is doing, but you know what, that's okay. God isn't in the habit of just communicating with me about everything he's thinking and the and the picture is much much bigger than just me. And I have to be reminded of that, don't you? Sometimes we, you know, we get this tunnel vision and all we think about is ourselves and but God's got a, a great big universe to run and a great big plan that's going on and it includes us, thank the Lord for that, but it's more than just us. And so Job had to kind of figure this out a little bit, right? Because he was questioning God. And that's kind of the whole drift of that book, right? That God kind of reveals to him, you know, you're just kind of down here. And it's not that you're insignificant in the sense that you don't mean anything to me. You do. You're very significant to me. But in the the overall scope of things, there's a cosmic picture. There's a whole bevy of things that We don't even have any understanding of what what God is doing. Well, this is what David is saying. He's saying, you know what? My eyes are not lifted up. My heart is not lifted up. The King James says, my heart is not haughty. In other words, David says, I can't afford to let myself become presumptuous. I can't afford to be like Job when God had to rebuke him and say, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And he's found himself caught in that trap. God finally reveals it to him that he's been questioning God. And we do that sometimes as well. Well, it's, it's when we do this, when we begin to question God, that we get all worked up. We get all lathered up. Uh, again, I, I find, I find the, the translation here interesting. It says, I do not occupy myself. And when I originally memorized this psalm, I would memorized it from the King James, so right away I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is interesting, translates here, occupy myself. The King James says, exercise myself. Well, I can get pictures in my mind from both things, but I'm so accustomed from having memorized the psalm to thinking about exercising myself that I immediately see myself as all lathered up, all hot and bothered. And I suspect that I have some company in the room tonight. And so attitude is so important. The psalmist, he has the same temptations, he has the same struggles that we do, but he determines that he's not going to go down that path. Well, let's look at the second thing because, as I said, attitude is critical because how you think about something is ultimately going to determine how you feel about it and how you feel about it will have a bearing on how you act, what you do. So the fact that the psalmist starts with telling us the attitude that he has assumed in response to this trial is one, now he comes and tells us what what he's doing as a result of this. And what he's basically saying to us, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Think about that. That's an action that the psalmist takes. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. You have to work at that. That isn't something that comes naturally. The other is what comes naturally, right? For us to get worked up, bothered, begin to question God, to to lose our calm, to lose the peace that God wants us to have. We have to reject that. We have to fight against that. That's exactly what the psalmist does. He rejects the 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 tendency to question God or to complain and instead determines to quiet himself as a weaned child. Well... This illustration, I think, again, is interesting because at first, when this happens, the child doesn't really understand. Now, I'm thinking about livestock. When I was, oh, around my mid-teen years, somewhere in the 15 to 17 range, well, for a longer period of time than this, but even before then, we had been doing horses. And we owned uh, not enough to really have, you'd say, a farm, but We had enough that we were raising some, and I always had one that was mine, and uh, training her, and I did some showing and did a lot of riding. And uh, so in the course of raising horses, you get to see a little bit of this. And I don't know who in the room might have experience with that tonight, but I mean, I can remember this very, very well. It gets time to wean that foal. Lots of times it's around when they're about six months old. It's time to wean that foal. And when that happens, that's pretty stressful on the the foal. They don't understand. And so you separate the two. You separate the mother from the foal. And it's not necessarily that they're miles apart. In fact, on our property when we did that, they could hear each other. They could whinny back and forth to each other. Mom may be a little upset at the time for a little while, but uh, the foal is really distressed with this. Well, this is kind of what the psalmist is talking about. You know, at first he doesn't understand, but all of a sudden something dawns on him. And beloved, this is, I think, what's so important for us tonight. All of a sudden it dawns on them he hasn't lost his mother. She's still there. Just as when these trials and these difficulties come along, we haven't lost God. He's still there. But instead, the mother is not gone. But instead, what for a time the mother has provided, that's gone. The mother isn't gone. And when the psalmist realizes this, when he plugs this into his relationship with God and realizes, you know, whatever it is that God took away. Whatever it is that formed this experience of loss for the psalmist, God may have removed that from his life, but God didn't remove himself. His presence is still there. All his promises are still there. They're all still operative. They're all still true in our lives. And it allows him to regain this calm, this this meekness, this submissive spirit, this this contentment. Well, let's move on to the last and then this, this is the psalmist's admonition. So We have this thing moving in three thoughts. First, the attitude, which is absolutely crucial. Then he tells us how that attitude affected the action that he took to deal with the problem. And then we come to the end, and you basically have the psalmist sharing that experience with us and encouraging and exhorting us on the basis of it. I really respect that. That means a lot to me. I realize that sometimes there are there are trials we pass through that are so deeply personal that maybe we can't share these things with other people. But for the most part, to have an attitude that you know what I went through this and it was very really difficult and I was torn up over this for a while. I wonder if I can leverage that. I wonder if I can use that for the Lord's glory somehow. I wonder if what I found out when I went through it. I wonder if the grace that proved sufficient for me. I wonder if I can share this in some kind of a meaningful way with other people and see God take that lesson through me and pass it along to other people. That's what the psalmist does. He says in verse 3, "O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore." Well, I find the word hope particularly interesting because first of all, I didn't mention this earlier, but this word hope, actually the whole phrase that's here is what ties these two psalms, Psalm 130 and Psalm 131 together they're almost, it's almost as if they're companion psalms, because if you go back up to verse 7 of Psalm 130, look, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Then you come down to the verse that we're in, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And so these psalms sort of go together, and it's always been a a real fascination of mine to try to understand more and more of how the psalms were put together as they were, and what what guidance and what thought work was behind that. Sometimes when they're grouped in such a way that they have similar thoughts, you can begin to maybe understand a little bit of what's going on. These two Psalms are kind of touching on a lot of the same subjects. But when these types of problems come into our lives, it's very easy for us to become upset. And the Psalmist talks about that in other places. Psalm 42 is a really good place for that, where he says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? And he says, hope thou in God, who is the health of my countenance and my song. Why art, thou, why art thou cast down, O my soul? And he admonishes himself. Well, in this psalm, he talks about what really gave him the upper hand in this and how that worked out and how that, what that looked like in his life. I want to show you a verse because this word hope, It's translated a number of times hope in the Old Testament, but it also has a component meaning to it that you might not think, but it really fits well. You might not think this is a part of hope, but when you study the thing out and then you think about it in the context, you realize, oh, wow, that really is interesting. So take a look at this. This is a a passage from Jonathan's experience. You remember when he and his armor bearer were going out and were, were looking to see if God might use them. And so... They're kind of waiting to see whether they should go up to the Philistines. And if the Philistines say one thing, they're going to go up to them. And if the Philistines don't say anything, they're they're going to stay right where they are. And so this is what he says to his armor bearer. Then then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait, that's this word, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still. There's the thought. We will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. So what's it talking about? Well, it's talking about a calm. It's talking about being able to not be frazzled, not be distressed, but instead to wait upon the Lord. It comes from realizing that God, like the mother who's wiser than the child, God is wiser. God is wiser than we are, and God hasn't made any mistakes in our lives. And when we get a hold of that and we let that sink into our hearts and sink into our minds, it allows us, instead of rushing all over the place and like chickens with our heads cut off, it allows us to hope because our thoughts have been redirected back to God himself. We hope in God. It enables us to stand still and have the calm and the peace that God wants us to have in these experiences. And as I say, and this is kind of the final thought in this tonight, David wants to share this encouragement and this exhortation with others. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I was reading a story about a father who had a a boy. The boy just happened to be approaching his 6th birthday. And so the dad was kind of thinking about, well, what, what might the boy want to have for his birthday? Well, <laughs> this boy was kind of unusual in the sense that if you asked him that question, he could usually give you a very specific answer. So he'd already said to his dad that he thought he might be interested in, in having a party for his birthday, but his dad asked him, he said, well, what would you like to have? And his dad was expecting him to give a very specific answer like he'd gotten in times past. For example, I'd like a baseball glove. You can find it at Toys R Us aisle six below the batting helmets? Or how about a Parcheesi board? The games are in alphabetical order in aisle one. It's between Pac-Man and Payday. But the boy didn't do anything like that. Instead he just said, well Daddy said maybe maybe a ball. And his dad said, hey that's great. Now, what kind of ball would you like? And the boy said, well, he said, either a soccer ball or a football. And the dad thought about that for a moment. He said, well, which one would you rather have? And the boy looked back at him and he said, well, dad, he said, tell you what, he said, if you think you're going to have some time this year that we could throw the ball together, he said, that we could play together, he said, get me a football because we can go in the backyard and throw it to each other. But he said, if you're not going to have any time this year, Then he said just get me a soccer ball because he said i can find kids in the neighborhood to kick that around with and i thought about that and i thought about not the gift but the giver out of the mouth of babes and what the boy was really telling his father of course was the time spent with his father meant more to him than the gift this is i think was what god wants us to get out of this psalm tonight he refocuses our attention on himself many times through the trials that he brings into our lives. May God bless us and help us in this tonight.